Coming up next, the booketing reads Macbeth. To the booking. My name is Nathan Opperson. I'm your humble and obedient host. I am joined today by the pastor who's master of reading. And his name is, I'll let him tell you, Jake Mintzel. And I'm joined by the PhD, AVD. And his name is Brandon Chastine. How you doing, Brandon? Great. And we are going to discuss the Scottish play, as I like to call it, by one Francis Bacon, perhaps, or. <coughs> um, <laughs> Christopher Marlowe, I don't know. Or the Earl of Oxford. The Earl of Oxford, quite possibly. But uh, you may know it, if you're not well-versed in these matters, as Macbeth by William Shakespeare. And we're going to discuss it right away. Yay! Yeehaw! All right. Let's do this. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. Oh, this is the sound! Yeehaw! It's the sound of the six shooters indicating the contextual Texan. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> this is the segment where Brennan Chastain provides some much-needed historical and literary context for our work. And this time I'm freestyling it. This time you're freestyling it. All right. All right. All right, Sugar Where Daddy? should we begin? How about the history of theater? <laughs> <laughs> All right, drop a beat, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> well, way back then. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm leaving. <laughs> okay. Well, let, we, we'll start with Shakespeare. Okay. He was born in 16th century, late 16th century, to a father who was a glove maker. Is that right? Something like that. And an alderman. <laughs> You're supposed to know. I'm supposed to know. <laughs> don't well, ask I, me if that's I saw right. he was a glover. <laughs> a glover. <laughs> and I don't think that means he was a Danny glover. <laughs> a glove maker, I'm assuming. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I love this the credibility of... This show is going is down. Going down. Okay, he, he was a Glover. If you guys want to look that up, we'll, we'll look it up. But even more importantly, he was an alderman who was a council member of his city. So he was a, from a fairly prominent family in Stratford, but not a noble family by any means. And the culture surrounding his birth was that you started having these towns that were arising. And these towns would have local leadership, but they would also have theater troops come through. He went to a small academy where at the time... <laughs> By dictate of the court, they would have learned some Latin, some Latin histories. And a lot of people think that this is where he got the background for his early plays that he would have written, the histories and some of the more historical plays, Julius Caesar. He married young at 18 and then quickly moved to London and started, we think, because not a whole lot is known about this period of his life, started his career in drama. He became friends with some other guys and together they started the Globe Theatre right across the Thames from London. And this was important because at the time, officials of London looked down on drama and they tried to squelch it, even though Queen Elizabeth liked it. And so one way to get around that would be like casinos built on the river. You would go across the Thames and you would build your theatres across the and so they built the globe in this plain that flooded a lot out in the middle of some farmland. And it was popular. And Shakespeare owned a p good part of it. As far as we know, he was fairly wealthy. But one of the issues with Shakespeare is we just don't know a whole lot about his life. We have some legal documents. We have his will. We know that he had two daughters that went on and their children, they, they got married, had children who had had no children. And so his bloodline was stopped. So yeah, so we don't know a whole lot about Shakespeare. We don't know a, lot, a whole lot about who he was. 
And so this arises, this gives birth to one of the controversies as to whether or not Shakespeare even wrote his plays. Well, we can get to that. What we do know about Shakespeare is that he was mentioned by other playwrights at the time. One called him this upstart peacock who strutted about with his feathers all ruffled. And so we know evidence that Shakespeare was writing at the time because of him. We also know that Ben Jonson praised him after he died. And Ben Jonson was, was another very prominent playwright. Shakespeare... The way that it worked at the time is the queen loved his theater, and so she would patronize these troops of actors, and so that would sort of give them validity. Shakespeare's troop became so prominent that when Queen Elizabeth died and King James took over the throne, they changed their name to the Kingsmen, and they were protected by King James and patronized by him. This is important for Macbeth because right around the time that King James took the throne, you had two things happen. One, you had him patronize Shakespeare's troop and they became the Kingsmen. You also had the gunpowder plot where you had Guy Fawkes and his group attempt to blow up Parliament. I have the name right here. I don't remember. It was one of the Catholic priests at the time. His name was Henry Garnet. And he was one of the movers of this rebellion against the throne. And one reason they tried to rebel against the throne is because they thought that they were oppressing Catholics. And so at the time, this is this is in the background because you had rebellion and you had King James. And if you know your history, King James was Scottish. And so a lot of people think that Shakespeare wrote Macbeth to thank King James for his patronage, but also to um, validate his kingship. Because Banquo's heirs, as everyone at the time would have known, would eventually lead to James. James was of the lineage of Banquo, according to legend. This wasn't uncommon for Shakespeare. There are allusions in other of his plays to Elizabeth, and especially at the beginning of the sonnets and some of these things where you have him praising her. And so uh, I think one of the sonnets, they think it was actually written to her. And playwrights did this all the time. They would praise the king or queen who was patronizing them. I read somewhere that Banquo, the, the historical or the legendary Banquo, was a much nastier figure, you know, may have even been involved in the murder. Um, but Shakespeare mm-hmm. had to clean him up quite a bit, I think. Yeah, cleaning up uh, characters is common. Uh, you see it even in some of his historical plays about the kings. And you'd, Depending on which lineage, yeah, you, you which team to, you're on, you're going to... Yeah, you had, you had to be aware of the court at the time because they were the ones who were patronizing these theater troops. And you already had the church, so just to give some other background behind where theater was at the time you in the early middle middle ages you had these mystery plays and they would have they would take place in the church they would be based on biblical narratives then they would slowly move out into the public and they would get some materials that were apocryphal in them and so the church eventually tried to put an end to it so you had that background so this religious context to theater and it would slowly become public and you would have in the squares you would have these traveling troops come and they would put on these plays another thing that happened was you had these guilds arise in cities and the guilds would sort of be almost like unions and they would be actors guilds and they would put on these performances and eventually when the church put an end to these religious plays, you had the guilds protected by royalty. And so some of them would still put on theater productions in the houses of nobles or uh, for the court of the queen. But about, about the time that Shakespeare was writing his plays, the nobles and the commoners would all see the plays together in these big theaters, in these big public houses. And so you would have the queen and you would have the uh, peasants all there. And so that's why you see all this rich variety of characters in Shakespeare. Another thing that influenced Shakespeare's plays was the rise of the Renaissance and the reintroduction of Greek and Roman theater into the high academy. And so you see this in Ben Jonson. You see this in a lot of the other, you know, Christopher Marlowe, who was writing at the time. The reintroduction of Aristotelian structure of drama. And so 
the way that's supposed to take place, you have one th- dramatic action that drives the play. It, it's driven by the characters, but also by the plot. And so you have your exposition at the beginning. It quickly rises to a climactic point, And then you have your fall towards the denouement, <coughs> which is just the final explosion, basically, where everything. So in the case of Oedipus Rex, he finds out his mother. He married his mom. He killed his dad. That's the climax. Then he tears his eyes out and his mom kills herself. That's the denouement. And so according to Aristotle, this was all supposed to take place in one day. And it was supposed to take place in media res, which is in the middle of the thing, which means that there's a lot of background that you might not know, but it's supposed to be taken care of as the plot moves along. Shakespeare both used these forms and also played with them and changed them some. His plays don't take place in a single day. And his plays are much more driven by psychology than just mere plot. And so, especially in his high tragedies, the high tragedies being uh, Macbeth, Othello, King Lear, and Hamlet, they're driven by the hubris of the main character. In in this case, Macbeth, his hubris, his, uh, his ambition for the throne and how this drives him mad, right? And so um, Shakespeare both used the old forms and also then changed them. And the big change that most critics point to with Shakespeare is this move towards character rather than just mere plot. And so Shakespeare gives you this whole world of characters that are rich and we see ourselves in. And as far as psychology goes, no one has ever matched. He just knew the world and he knew humanity. And you can see those in his characters. And um, yeah, in that way, he was groundbreaking. And another way he was groundbreaking was through his language. There's a whole list of words that Shakespeare created in the English language. And there are a whole list of metaphors that he created. Um, Owen Barfield, a friend of C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called Poetic Diction, and one of the middle sections of that is dedicated to just showing you how Shakespeare changed the word ruination and how he added depth and meaning to it and how he associated it with humanity and with our history and how before then it was just sort of a term for buildings, but how he made it much richer by giving it poetic imagery and meaning and depth. And he was just doing that all the time with language. He was using metaphors and wit and just uh, he created a whole poetic form that has influenced English language. This was the high flowering of English language. Uh, until then, you had great poetry, but with Shakespeare, it was the culmination. You saw the the high point of what English could do, the power of it. To interrupt for a second, yep. Shakespeare created over <laughs> 1,700 words Man. Uh, he, that he, he invented from a partial list that I just pulled up on Google. Accommodation, Ariel, Amazement, Apostrophe, Assassination... Maybe we see its invention in this play. Mm-hmm. Baseless, bloody, castigate, changeful, clangor, control. Yeah, so you see his influence on English language. This one man, one... Disheartened, generous, gloomy, gnarled, multitudinous, obscene, pious, uh, submerged, suspicious. A lot of just common pious. English words now. He created pious. Apparently. Well, it seems suspicious. <clears throat> that makes well, me a lot gloomy. Of the, yeah. <laughs> a lot of these may have been him changing a common word to a new... Sure. Like it, making it an We're standardizing or yeah. what an exciting time and what an exciting thing to yeah. mm-hmm. be a part of to because go see what Shakespeare is going to come up with next. Mm-hmm. I think in our Beowulf episode, did we talk at all about where English language was at the time? It was Anglo-Saxon, Germanic in its tone. Mm-hmm. And so so what happened, because it's, it's interesting, is um, you had the Anglo-Saxons and then uh, – William the Conqueror came, 1066, and he brings with him Norman influence. Norman is French influence. And so with that, you have sort of the Latinate 
romance or influence into the English language. And so this especially becomes important when you have Eleanor of Aquitaine come into the English court. And with her, she brings all these French poets and they bring with them the romance chivalric tradition. And so you have Arthurian romance born at the time. And that's kind of an exciting period in English history because it's the 1200s. But what you see is English language slowly starts to develop. And then you get into the 1300s. And you get the first great genius, which is um, Chaucer. And you see English becoming Middle English. <laughs> and um, this is the Latinate things becoming more prominent. And what's fascinating with English is that since you have these Germanic Anglo-Saxon tones to it, but you also have these French tones, you can both have guttural stresses within your poetic line, but you can also then rhyme as well. Because with Anglo-Saxon, you couldn't really rhyme because it was clunky. B- but with French, you could rhyme. But with French, you had no guttural stresses because it's a very effeminate language, right? And so with English, you have the ability to have Shakespeare. You have the ability to have the sonnets because English is such a versatile language that the greatest literature has been and will probably always have been written in English. Sorry, other languages. It's just, it is without a doubt the most beautiful language. And so Shakespeare is known all over the world as being the great poet because he had a language which was rich to work with. And so what happened is by the time you get to the 1600s, when he, late 15, early 1600s, when he's writing, is we're moving out of Middle English. We're getting more towards modern English. And as it's changing, he's just taking advantage of this watershed moment. And no one, I mean, it's one of those perfect historical moments where we won't ever have it again. And so history gave us Shakespeare, which brings us to, uh, so we've talked about his language. We've kind of talked about the history. We've given some background to Macbeth. Really all that they're left is to say, I think, would be this controversy about whether or not he actually wrote his plays. Um. If you want to hear us talk about this, um, we talk about it in the part two of our favorite books episode. Somehow we got off on our favorite childhood books. Actually, somehow we got off on um, well, Shakespeare truthers because Jake's favorite author is Shakespeare. Spoiler. Um, so you can hear us talk about it a little bit there. But uh, what do you want to say in uh, well, summation I, of that whole thing? No serious scholar actually believes that Shakespeare did not write his plays. Um, there's no reason to think that Shakespeare did not write his plays. It's kind of like the cons- it's these conspiracy theories that a complete lack of evidence means that it's true. <laughs> yeah, it's absurd. Where it comes from... We never landed on the moon. Yeah. Nobody well, can go up and check and see if the flag's there. Yeah, exactly. So th- there's no evidence for Shakespeare not writing his plays, and so of course that's the great reason to believe the conspiracy because that's what the person who created it in the first place would want you to think, right? The Earl of Oxford, of course, would want to hide his trail so well that it makes it look like Shakespeare wrote his plays. And there is some evidence that the will apparently is not very well written. Um, one reason could be that he dictated it. Another reason could be that it, he just didn't care to write beautiful prose when writing his will. <laughs> it was also towards the end of his life. He died within, uh, it was very soon after writing his will that he died. And nobody really knows why he died. He only lived to be about 50 or so, He was right? 52, yeah. And Ben Johnson said about him, you know, this, he died too soon. And there's a reason that after his death, his friends, Condal and the other guy, Hinges, or Hings, however you say his name, decided to have this folio of all his plays. It's because they knew that these were worth preserving. Shakespeare never thought during his life that his plays would be preserved like this, but his friends knew that they should. Um, and there's no reason to think a humble craftsman during that time period would be some huge historical celebrity like he would be today. It's reasonable to assume that he would have lived a humble, quiet life other than the theater where he was popular. That he, he, he was an actor too, wasn't he? Yeah, he was an actor. You see his name in some of the playbills. At the time, writing was seen as a craft and not some art that was made by geniuses. The idea of genius would come about much later in the Romantic period when you had Keats and all these guys want to 
defend their position as the new priests of the world. At that time, the people that were astonishing everyone would have been the kings and queens, would have been the royalty. And your humble craftsmen, they were part of these guilds, and they put hard work into making beautiful things. And they didn't think so highly of themselves as to um, need to be a celebrity or need to be remembered by posterity like that. They were just making the equivalent to a beautiful chair, right? But he was doing it very well with well-crafted words, and he knew his craft. He mastered it. You can see the way Shakespeare's plays change. One of the most evident things is the way that he changes his language so that each character speaks in their own way. And so you just see how he masters his craft. And you just get the sense that he was someone who loved to write, just like um, a, a wood, a car, you know, what do they call it? Woodmaker? Woodcarver. Wood, woodworker. <laughs> loved to carve and he, he just did it really well, better than anyone else has, ever has or will. He came from humble origins. He didn't go to Oxford, which made some of these other playwrights at the time mad. Like I said, you had the one who called him this upstart crow. I think it might have been crow, not peacock. But Ben Johnson grew to love him. He, he became close friends with these other guys. And there's evidence from other great writers that we've seen that universities can actually stifle your ability to become the great artist that Shakespeare became. And there's every reason to believe that someone who didn't go to university would have the experience and the depth of knowledge and the time to read and all these other things that Shakespeare must have done to become Shakespeare to become Shakespeare. So yeah, and that's what I found find so offensive <laughs> about these truthers is the assumption that for someone to be a genius, they had to have been of noble birth. They had, you know, they always want to find a celebrity of the area of the era or celebrities and assign the plays to them because it only makes sense that a duke or an earl, to me, it just seems incredibly snobby or Francis Bacon, who has all these accomplishments in other fields. We don't want to allow for the fact that a humble craftsman could just make great plays because that's what he set out to do and because he understood himself and understood his friends. They don't want to allow for that. And I just think it's it's the worst kind of socialistic snobbery in the world. Yeah, I think the best argument that we've seen in the bookening for Shakespeare is Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. She also had humble beginnings. She didn't go off to university. She just had a library. She had her wit and she had her ability to observe people and then write amazing stories about it. Arguably second only to... Yeah. Mr. And Shakespeare. So Shakespeare, I see every reason to think that he was just, well, Dickens also. He's not second only to Shakespeare, but he had a similar genius in that he never went to university, but he did have the ability to just see the world and then put his vision to it and make a story out of it. And so we see this all over the place. So I really don't understand. I, I just, I don't get it. I find it really compelling the idea that Shakespeare was writing. We all when we think about books in any author today is maybe not any author but m- most authors today i think are writing in some respect with a view toward history with a view to how they'll be remembered with a view to are they writing something that lasts and some of them make a conscious decision that i'm no i'm just writing pulp fiction and nobody's going to care but the idea that shakespeare had not much precedent the play the theater was coming into its own and he was just a craftsman at the right place at the right time and he was writing something that was going to be Forgotten and other playwrights are going to come along and write great things, too. And Mm -hmm. to see him create such great, great art that he could only have suspected would be a transient thing that wouldn't last is uh, it's not like he was building a cathedral. I don't know. Maybe he did think it would last. Yeah, we don't know. Who really does know, but... but We have no reason to think he did. We see no attempt on his part to preserve his work. Every attempt that there was to preserve his work was made by his friends so you just get the sense that he just he loved the theater it was his life he retired went back 
bought one a really the second biggest house in Stratford and lived out his days for the last three years there. He was very aware of his art. I mean, The Tempest is very, it, it references the theater a lot, but you just get the sense that he's a guy who loved his craft, did it really well. But at the time, there was no precedent for being remembered like that, except for the old ancients and the Greeks and the Romans. And then you had your philosophers and your theologians, but literature, literary studies were not a thing yet. It wasn't like he thought he was writing the next great British book of plays. Like now people try to write the great American novel. You just got, when you're thinking about Shakespeare's time, you got to just clear your head of our modern context where we think about the writer as the genius and the writer as writing something that will be a part of the canon. But nobody knows what posterity is going to do. Nobody knows yeah. nothing about what posterity is going to do. I think it's a good lesson is just write your best or do your best job now because you don't know what people... I mean, you look at the mo- a movie from 10 years ago that was nominated for an Oscar that everybody was talking about that won Best Picture and now nobody cares. You know, you look you look at the books that were on the New York Times bestseller and you look at what lasts and you just... You cannot predict. We have no idea. Kids may always read Harry Potter. They may give it up after this generation there's just absolutely i mean you can you can make qualitative judgments of course but you don't know what posterity is going to do you just don't know what's going to stick mm-hmm. so all our candles light the way to dusty death and everything's meaningless one good way to just be remembered by academics is to try and write things that will be remembered forever <laughs> uh, i think that's what james joyce ended up falling into his short stories are really good but then ulysses just doesn't make any sense mm-hmm I get the sense that Shakespeare just wrote plays that he thought people would love to see. Yeah. And that's why you get weird characters like the Porter. Mm -hmm. He thought that people would enjoy seeing his plays, and they did. And people still enjoy seeing his plays. All over the world, they're translated into all sorts of different languages. Yeah, I think it's important to remember, and maybe it'll come as a shock to, like, some of our listeners. These are crowd pleasers. I mean, you – these are pot boilers. These are thrillers. These are – Macbeth starts with – people plotting a murder it's it's their house of cards or their breaking bad or you know mm-hmm. I, I hate to use analogies like that but if that's the only way you're going to understand it then that's the way you need to understand it because that's that's how people were thinking it was exciting it was fun it was an evening at the theater it was going to the movies it was yeah and greenblatt's one of his books called will in the world which is his attempt to reconstruct what shakespeare's life would have been like he paints a scene of what it would have been like to be at one of the plays at the time and it's different than what what i think people would imagine be much more rowdy there's a literal peanut gallery right yeah so you have literally everyone is there together it's festive and it's they're laughing and they love what they're seeing on stage this language would have not been so strange to them um and yet it's important to note that even at shakespeare's time nobody talked in this heightened that's right we are we are looking at poetry (laughs) it's not like everybody went around saying alas poor you know i knew him well yeah i mean i i forgot to mention his poetic style which is the blank verse that he created himself it's iambic pentameter which is the Shakespeare invented iambic pentameter? He didn't invent iambic pentameter, but he mastered the blank verse style, which means that the end of the lines didn't rhyme. Each line had the 10 syllables, five specific uh, stresses. He mastered it to make it. This is basically the way that English, we speak in iambic pentameter most of the time. And so he took that, and but he heightened it because a lot of the theater style at the time was already heightened language because it was presented so often in front of royals. Or it came from this religious tradition. And so he took that, but then he also played with it. Because you get these characters like um, the porter or the 
the buffoons and the other plays. If somebody's coming to Shakespeare, if this is their first time reading Macbeth or they're watching it, however they're approaching it, someone who's a Shakespeare novice, what would you advise them? How do you come to it? How do you understand it? How do you listen to it? How do you read it? What's the best way if you find yourself struggling a little bit or if it if it starts to feel a little bit like a math problem where you have to stop every five words to try and figure out, what would you advise people? Well, one thing to remember is that our tendency to privilege reading in your head is a very modern creation, and these weren't meant to be read in your head. And so if you're really struggling, it, it helps to read it out loud and to try and actually give life to what's being said. It, it, it is helpful because you can hear the way that the sentences are put together. You can, I think you can understand it a little better if you read it out loud. And so if I come upon a passage that is hard to understand, I'll often I'll read it and try to put some vitality to it. And I would also say watch the plays. If you can find a mm-hmm. good performance, a good movie, you got to be careful. There are bad ones out there, of course. But a good actor is going to basically communicate the meaning of the words so that you can you can follow the plot, even if you're missing about 50% of the language. If you watch a Shakespeare movie and you're paying attention, you can usually follow the plot and start to understand the language. And then you can go back. This is, this is how I did it when I was young. You know, I'd watch a movie version. I'd, I'd get it. And then I'd, I'd go back and I'd read it. I'd have a, a through line to follow, and then I'd be able to work off of that. It's not just that they weren't meant to be read in your head or read aloud. They were meant to be performed and consumed yeah. visually, given life by stage direction and by acting. And Yeah, so there's no reason not to watch the plays. That was their original intention. I do think that it's easy to get caught up in the way that we think of reading and stuff now and yeah, you should read Shakespeare, but there's no reason to not consume Shakespeare the way he was intended to be consumed. So and in many ways, that's the better way to do it. I find even, you know, I mean, I like to think that I know how to read a book and kind of play active in my head. But even when I'm reading something like Shakespeare, I tend to, like, your castle is surprised, your wife and babe savagely slaughtered. To relate the murder, we're on the quarry of those. Me and Jake watched a movie version where that particular scene was really affecting. And the way that the guy was doing it, you know, obviously he poured all kinds of emotion into your castle. It wasn't your castle is surprised, your wife and babe savagely slaughtered. But I just find myself naturally not acting it out in my head the way that if I just bring a little simple emotion to it, an imagination, Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, this thing comes alive. It's not a novel where he's giving me cues. Cues. You have to provide some of the cues yourself if you're going to be reading it, and you have to take the time and have the imagination to do that. And if you do, you'll find that it comes to life for you. Oh, I guess a lot of the privileging of reading in your head is also you're th- you're thinking that you get this, and that it's not a very it's not it's not public. But Shakespeare was very public, mm-hmm. and he was meant to be consumed by everyone. Everyone was to enjoy it. Shakespeare is now thought of, I think, by especially a lot of young people as this thing that they just have to get through. In high school, oh, man, I've got to read Shakespeare. If that's the way you're approaching Shakespeare. For elite smart people. Yeah, it's for elite. It's just, it doesn't have to be that way. It's old language, sure. But if you have a good teacher who can tell you what some of the words mean, or you just get a good addition that will help you understand, like this one, it, it translates some of the difficult passages. And that's to be expected. I mean, it was written 500 years ago. Yeah, I, I've, I usually use Folger's Shakespeare, and they have on one page the play, and on the other page, they just have little pictures and explanations, and you can just kind of flip back, use the explanations where you need to, and just read through in an uncluttered way as you go. I think Jake has, uh, is that the Barnes & Noble's yeah, version? Same. Yeah, that's those are good versions as well, if you want to support your local terrible Barnes & Noble's superstore um or you can always get these massive editions that have all the plays in them this one's the oxford edition one thing i think is important to read 
or remember whenever you come to Shakespeare is that nobody actually gets everything. Yeah. Not even the scholars. The, the, the plays, the way the words were pronounced. There's a number of lines in my Folger edition where the, the liner notes say probably means or yeah. some people think means or. Right. There's all kinds of uh, puns, plays on words, double entendre that. Shakespeare's original audience would have would have gotten you know scholars have to parse and you we're just not gonna we're gonna we, we miss so much and that's okay yeah I think this is gonna sound so corny but I think you kind of have to trust yourself a little bit if you think it means a certain emotion it, you're probably right that's been my experience is I'll think oh they love each other don't they and then I'll go back and do all this research and I'll be like yep they love each other you know because context clues usually can make that pretty clear, even if you don't know the Greek story that he's referencing or... To trust yourself is really to trust Shakespeare. To trust Shakespeare, yeah. That that he's he a good job of... Exactly. Yeah. That's a less cheesy way to put it. Thank you. And so if it evokes an emotion in you, it's probably because he was smart and he knew how to evoke the right emotion in you. So probably it's right. Probably what you're feeling, probably what you're thinking, probably what your intuition says is... Well, we even had that. Me and Jake watched a movie version of it. And there was one point where Jake paused it and said, did, did what I think just happened happen? And I think they said, yeah, I think what you think just happened happened. And then we thought about it and we were like, yeah, what we think just happened happened. <laughs> and, then we pushed, <laughs> and then we pushed play. <laughs> what did you think just happened happened? Uh, I don't the, remember what the context... It was the scene where um, Malcolm plays a little mind game with Macduff where oh, he right. says like I'm real voluptuous and yeah. <laughs> I'm greedy and I'm going to kill way, everybody. The way it was played, you know, he sold it and then the actor really made it look like in this way that they filmed it made it look like he was voluptuous like suddenly it cuts to babes and everything. And um yeah, and then he goes into the church and then he's, you know, of course denying it actually. And it's like, okay, wait a second. I'm pretty sure what just happened is because we watched this before either of us had read it. I'm pretty sure what just happened is he was putting on being voluptuous to test the dude to see. And we were right. Shakespeare had successfully communicated that to us. We just didn't trust our intuition. Our, yeah. Yeah. So trust Shakespeare. I agree with that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and to thine own self be true is what I'm trying to say. Oh, uh, something else about I didn't mention was that Shakespeare had the ability to both be timeless in his presentation of people, but also to be very timely and like dealing with things that were happening at the moment. That's one reason, like you were saying, it can be hard because we don't know the con- context clues. Or, but you'll see that in almost every piece of great writing. I think a lot of young writers think they have to be timeless and never deal with anything that's happening today. It's just it's a it's surefire just, way to never be timeless. Yeah, right. it's a surefire way of just making yourself seem stupid. Great writing is is in the details and the specifics. Yeah. Saying he drank a Coke is much more interesting than saying he drank a soda. And so you can't the, when you anchor when you try to be beverage. timeless. You know, yeah, when you try you to might be not time- have Coke, a yeah. beverage, <laughs> right. a sweetened beverage, a sweetened <laughs> beverage with bubbles. <laughs> Dance upon the tongue. <laughs> Smooth like honey. <laughs> well, maybe if Shakespeare had written about Coke, that's how it would have sounded. Take yeah, what's the, that great line in the play no, where the witches, he says, now door. the earth has bubbles? Now the earth has, oh, uh, yeah. That's great. Um, a lot of the things that I say with about the not despising writing in modern terms or not despising reading out loud is just me talking to my stupid old self. Mm-hmm. Because I know that's that when kid, I was young, yeah. I thought... You know, this is precious. And so I'm going to understand it. But then the plays, that's just stupid. That's visual. Why would that mean anything? Well, Shakespeare, is, he was writing these to be on the stage. And he, I mean, it was, he would just be like, I don't know. 
It's like <laughs> good for you, kid. <laughs> now I'm going to go act in the play. <laughs> forget, forget the AFI top 100. Just give me the film scripts. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> and a good movie version can bring to life something like they fight alarm bells. You know, in a way that reading it just ain't going to cut. You know, if you're not going to take the time and read all the stage direction and ma- really let your imagination bring it all to life and. Well, yeah, then Macbeth's death just that's becomes... That's really what you have to do. <laughs> Macbeth dies. Right, exactly. They oh. fight off the stage. Alarum. They fight back onto the stage for some weird reason. Macbeth dies. <laughs> Macbeth dies. They have it. <laughs> All right. Well, that was some good context, Brandon. Did you like that context, Jake? Yeah, I did like that. What's that sound? It's the airplane going over, indicating baggage check. The portion of the show where we talk about what baggage we brought to this particular reading. Uh, Jake, what baggage did you bring to Big Macbeth? Just the expectation of greatness, I guess. I don't know. I... You've talked before about how Shakespeare like is awesome. You want to reiterate that? <laughs> Shakespeare's really awesome. <laughs> Jane. Changed your life. Changed your life forever, all that kind of thing? So the baggage I bring is that Shakespeare was really important in my understanding of myself. He was really important in your understanding of yourself. So did you have any trepidation coming back to him as an adult? Had it been a while since you'd read him? Yeah, I haven't actually read Shakespeare since. I've maybe read one or two plays since high school, which is, you know long time ago so he was really powerful and important for you in high school didn't you? Like 15 years ago whenever i reread something a long time after i'm always worried that it's yeah. not gonna hold up yeah I, I have enough confidence in the fact that shakespeare's held up for so long that he is shakespeare is gonna hold up uh, i guess the only thing i was nervous about was we, we, whenever you read something that has that strong an impact on you there is still that expectation that well it might be disappointing it might um, still be good but sim- but, but maybe but, not you know because it hits you in that moment in that the time of uh, of life where it was needed, you know, it might lack the power or whatever. And the other thing is, you know, I, I was I'm not in the practice of reading Shakespearean language anymore. And did you, in fact, find it difficult to get back into the swing of it? I want to say that my uh, some of my imagination has died. The ease with which I was able to really enter into the plays before, maybe that was also just a part of the time of life and, you know, uh, having in some ways come to the first oasis in the desert, you know, as, as a kid, just really everything popped and, uh, and I had to do more work, uh, to make things pop this time, or it seemed to me that I did. I did too, but I think maybe this is just a more difficult play than some of my favorites, but we'll, we'll talk about that. I suppose. I want to say that everything that I, I felt like everything I said about what was awesome about Shakespeare in our past podcast was, was being challenged before me as we went through this Hmm. particular play. I thought so too. And I thought, (laughs) surprise, surprise, the immortal bard of Stratford upon Avon did rise to the challenge, but I was worried for him there a little bit. (laughs) You were worried for him. (laughs) Yeah. I have to admit it was, yeah, I had a similar experience that, the language was hard. And some of these speeches you had to go back over a couple times to really understand. Yeah, there was one like that I Lin- just... The, th- the thing that Linux, when he's talking to the other guy, I found that really hard to even get what he was saying. I think he was being sarcastic. Maybe. He was. It was, yeah. He was being sarcastic, but at first I thought, oh, I guess he supports Macbeth. Right. And then I went back and he said something about, oh, the traitor needing to go and get him and let's hope that... The king comes swiftly to save us all. And I'm like, oh, whoa, so I missed something. And went back and read it and said, okay, so he's being sarcastic. I do think there's something to having the practice of reading this all the time. Mm -hmm. I feel out of practice. You do need to 
doing this a lot for it to come easy. It doesn't mean that after the first act or so, it doesn't start coming easier because mm-hmm. you get back into it. Well, but, then the other thing that I wonder, uh, how easily was it actually coming? Mm-hmm. It felt like it came really easy to me when I was a freshman and sophomore in high school. And now I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, well, how easily how, how easily did it really come? How much actually washed over you, you idiot? That's right. You know? I think that's... It, maybe you've actually grown in your understanding <laughs> and therefore you're realizing there are difficulties you just never... Right. You, that just went right... But I'll just repeat exactly what you just said. <laughs> Thanks. <Idiot. laughs> yeah, your, your brain just pretended they didn't... Well, I definitely, there. I definitely felt that in my first reading of the Bible when I became a Christian about my junior senior year of high school. That it was easy then. Yeah, that yeah. when I, I hit the New Testament and I just I ate mm-hmm. it up and I read I read through the entire New Testament like three times in a month and it was just like and I felt like I was understanding and right there on and then all of a sudden I go back and I read Hebrews and it's like this doesn't make any sense. What at in all. the world? <laughs> like. <laughs> No kids so either, yeah, so either you're becoming banging your head up against yeah. Romans, you know, like, and you actually feel like a dumb little kid, but it's actually hopefully because you're becoming more godly in that in the case of the Bible, and therefore you realize your own sin and you realize mm-hmm. how much of this just doesn't compute for you. Where yeah, you when, when you're younger, you think that you get it all, and then as you get older, you realize you don't get it all. It, but it also becomes the language affected me more. Like I actually appreciated the beauty of the play more. Mm-hmm even though it was strange and hard. I, I admired the craft. I sympathized with the characters more than I did. So Interesting. I do want to say, though, that my imagination was fired back then in a way that it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Like, just putting myself there, imagining, watching the play unfold in my head as I, as I read, all of that was just something about that time of life, maybe, or what's Around happened what time since. Was it huh? in high school? It's 15. Part, I think that's true. Well, you're just Part awakening of, to the this wonderful... The stuff that you read and the music that you listen to and the movies you watch and every, the entertainment, I guess, that you take in at that is what's going to imprint on you for the rest of your life in a way that it just doesn't happen when you're an adult, I don't think. Yeah, nothing has affected me as intensely as what I read around that age. Mm-hmm. And I remember just being moved and my like you said my imagination was on fire and i was just seeing all these things and loving these books that i was reading in a way that affect me now but so there's a distinct difference in the way that i read like jane austen back then versus reading her now but i think that i appreciate her more now yeah than i did then i mean it's it's interesting to grow up with characters you know <laughs> i mean jane austen i think was the most interesting for me reading it once being a you know younger than lizzie reading it again, being about Lizzie's age, and then we read it this year, and we're all at least 10 years older than Lizzie. It's just a different experience. And, you you know, at a certain point, you feel like you're a brother to a character, and then the next time you read it, you feel sort of paternal. And it's just weird how books work on you, and especially the ones that you live with over a long time. Anything baggage that you brought, Brandon, to Macbeth or to Shakespeare in general, or anything that struck you about this reading? As far as baggage, that's weird. None that it's kind of hard to describe what baggage I might have brought. I know what baggage I used to bring and what baggage I have brought. This time, it was like Jake said, I just knew I was coming to Shakespeare and expected a good a good ride. Right. I read him a lot in grad school. They bring a lot of baggage. Everybody wants Shakespeare to be who they want him to be. I think I mentioned about Caliban last time, the way they all try to give their feminist post-modern readings of all these Shakespearean plays and... Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are feminist readings of Lady Macbeth. Oh, I've got I'm one. In sure. the, I've got one in my, today that I'll be sharing with yeah, us. I'm sure there. Are, I'm sure there are feminist readings of the witches. So I used to bring that baggage where I would want to try and make Shakespeare into these things to please the professors. What's the uh, 
Dylan line, I'm younger now. And I was so much older then. I'm yeah, younger, than, I'm younger right now. than that now. What I've enjoyed about reading the things so far for the bookending is I just approach it as something I'm going to appreciate and not try to ruin in the way that I would have one time ruined it. So I'm like a recovering uh, alcoholic. Now that I'm not an alcoholic, this martini tastes great. (laughs) 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 My baggage, I've always loved Shakespeare. I've always had a difficult time with Macbeth for whatever reason. It's just never really clicked for me. I had a difficult time with it. I think I've made my peace with it and made my peace with it being a great play and one that I need to learn from and Hmm. love and everything. But uh, it's always been one of the more difficult Shakespeare plays for me. And uh, I had kind of made some mistakes in my reading this time, which I'll tell you about, and uh, Mr. Menzel was part and parcel of most of these. We started by watching the Michael Fassbender version that just came out next, last year, which I highly discourage anyone from watching. It's it's just, it's not great. And it was a really bad place to the start. The dumb thing is that it has so many great qualities to it. He gives a great performance. She gives a fantastic performance. The cinematography is real pretty. But the way that they do the play is to whisper everything and to do a very subdued kind of real psychological, psychologically accurate, I suppose, reading of it. And somehow that just really dampened my understanding of the play. After I saw that version, I just couldn't help but, and this is the danger, of course, of seeing any version of anything, is that it solidifies in ways that you don't even understand you're thinking about something. So I was thinking of it, I think, as kind of a whispery, depressing thing, just without realizing that that's how I was thinking of it. I was viewing it through that that, that filter. And I'm not proud of that. I mean, I feel like a moron for doing that. But it really, I, I think, affected the way I read the play. And then... Uh, me and Jake also watched the Patrick Stewart version, which has some silly stuff, but I would highly recommend, which is like a great theater performance. It was like a PBS movie, basically, which is set in a modern World War II. And that version starts with the three witches being really creepy and like ripping some guy's heart out or something like that. And the second that they ripped that guy's heart out, believe it or not, the whole play clicked for me. So I was just like, oh... This is a drama. This is blood and thunder. This is a theatrical piece. It's meant to be sound and fury. Storm and... and a storm and drunk. Storm drunk. And you know, <laughs> is here, what it is? here I am try- bringing, like, I think maybe I was bringing Breaking Bad to it a little bit, or, or some of these shows, too, where I was looking for a kind of subdued realism that just wasn't what Shakespeare was writing, and I needed a really over-the-top version of the play to kind of make me understand, oh, this play, you know, it's a play. It's theatrical. It's... I think somehow I was just looking at the play... It's a thriller. Wrong. It's a thriller. And I was looking at at it as this really subdued character piece, and, and... it wasn't working for me. I was like, why are these, why, why in this subdued character piece are people, you know, suddenly committing this murder and then feeling really guilty about it. And then suddenly he's this thug, you know, it doesn't, it's not tracking. When I try and bring a certain level of psychological realism for me, it's not quite tracking. When I, when I look at it as like a Breaking Bad or a TV show, it's not quite tracking for me, but it was just like, I was looking at it the wrong way. And then I saw a version and suddenly it was like when you're at the eye doctor and they slip the new lens in and suddenly you can read the the fine print it was like suddenly the world came into focus and i knew what the play was and maybe it's just a personal thing and not one that i can i don't feel like i've made anybody that's listening to this understand but all i can say is i didn't get it and then i got it came into focus came into focus and i understood what the play was i understood what shakespeare was trying to do i understood how he was trying to do it how the characters worked what kind of characters they were so i would just i I mean maybe the lesson is just beware of baggage sometimes you bring baggage to things that you just don't 
realize you're bringing. In this case, I think I was looking at it from a very modern perspective without realizing that that's what I was doing. And I needed kind of an old fashioned version of it to just like shove my nose in the fact that this is an old fashioned theater piece. And you have to, Hmm. when you're not looking at it that way, it can be damaging to your understanding of how the play works and how the characters work. That helps. That's good. Because I don't think I realized until just now that Shakespeare's tragedies have never really clicked with me. Mm-hmm. The four high tragedies. I've never really. Uh, it, when I go and I read Shakespeare, I I love his histories. I love The Tempest. I love all these other plays. But like Hamlet has never really done it for me. Othello, King Lear has, but Macbeth never really had until now. And one of the reasons is because I listened to an audible version of a BBC production in my car, and you could hear the the high tragedy, like you were saying, the drama to it, mm-hmm. and it helped me realize, oh yeah, so this is this is like King Lear. There's the crazy weirdness to it that marks King Lear. So maybe I had a similar experience without even realizing it until you voiced it for me, Nathan. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe I'm just I'm still trying to I'm stuck on this because I want to explain it in a way that people can understand. I think maybe I was expecting the play to be more Dostoevsky-ish. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I So it was weird to me, for example, that Macbeth is so contemplative, he understands himself so well, and yet he commits this murder, knowing full well that he's going to feel horrible guilt and be driven mad. And then, lo and behold, he's instantly driven mad. And then in the next scene, he's this horrible, idiot type thug that's just like having everybody murdered. And it's like... Yeah, children, everyone. Are... How does this track? How do I make psychological sense of this? The fact is, <sighs> you have to realize it's dialed up to 11, and if you're if you're assuming that it's supposed to track in the way that just like normal non-theatrical life tracks, it doesn't. You have to allow for it to be a little over the top, I guess. And uh, I just needed to see it that way or else it doesn't play. Hmm. Today was written and produced by me, Nathan Alberson. It was performed by me, Nathan Alberson, him, Brandon Chastain, and him, Jake Menzel. You can go to warhornmedia.com for lots more great content, including back episodes of this entire podcast and books and music. Got an awesome Psalms project, really cool, volume two coming out next year. And other cool stuff, rate us highly on iTunes, that helps us a lot. And thank you very much. Thank you.